0: Bookworm Games, Episode 49, Really, Truly. If Gears can be helpfully interpreted as a literary work, as I've argued and have tried to demonstrate, then these central chapters of the game more and more approach pure poetry. If I had to choose just one segment of the game to anthologize, so to speak, it would be the exploration of Shavat and the Old City. I tried to evoke that a bit in the last episode, knowing my words would fall short, but I hope to trace in the much maligned second disc of the game some of the ways in which the same poetic insights continue to recur and develop out of all proportion, albeit to the gameplay. That shift in the balance of poetry, perhaps never fully satisfying in Xenogears between the story inspiring it and the game embodying it, begins to come apart here towards the end of the first disc. This time we are discussing the three gates, and next time the infiltration of Solaris. And we'll go on from there as best we can, accounting for the structure and pacing of what's left of the game, which is almost fully subsumed in the mode of our main characters telling us the story rather than letting us play through it. Leaving Shavat now, in a flight enabled Yggdrasil 3, or the third, we head back to Nisan, reportedly occupied by Shakan's troops, and otherwise eerily empty. There's a kind of anticlimax here that I can't help but read into as emblematic of the way the rest of the game is going to go. And I have to wonder, of all the ways this portion of Xenogears could have been engineered to maintain the level of excitement and urgency that characterizes its best parts, why did the developers settle for doing things like this, giving us an airship only to have us fly back to a previously explored area, emptying that area of its inhabitants, garrisoning it with a token handful of weak foes, breaking up the flow of the story with conversations between the characters in which no one seems to have much of a plan as to what to do. And then there's a passage of straight narration displayed on the screen, like what we saw at the end of the Shivat portion describing the Choo Choo's celebration, but even more like what opened the game explaining the backstory of the warfare between Ava and Kislev, thus fitting these events into their place in that history that we were given back at the start of the game. It begins that retrospective mode that we'll become so familiar with. It reads, With the help of Fey and his colleagues, Nisan was freed from Shakan's army. However, the Fatima, Jasper, and the legendary treasures of the Ave royal family were still in danger. And now, he's going to play his last card, and Shakan's true intentions will be brought to light. The confusing pronoun shift there, from talking about Fay to talking about Shakan playing his last card, the mixing of cliches with that last card and being brought to light, still leaves us in the same somewhat aimless position as we were in before the narration, so I'm not entirely sure what the point of it was. Direction comes in the form of Sister Agnes. She points out where the remaining residents have taken refuge in the royal mausoleum behind the cathedral. In fact, it's all the way around the lake where the long flights of stairs lead down to a bay door sealed shut. It emerges that Bart has always known about this place and that the treasure of the dynasty the gear recorded in those scrolls he shows Faye and Satan back at his lair that treasure has been hidden away here and he knew that all along too it seems some people of Nisan were taken hostage forcing the nuns to divulge the location of the treasure they knew it too and the true nature of the Fatima Jasper and that is at last revealed to be the retinal pattern of the royal family. Shakan would, it seems, desire to break in and would not stop short of taking the eyes from Margie's mother's corpse to get at the Omnigir. This imagery of eyes, light, and darkness, the treasure held by the past, by the dead, in fact, and the evil of desecration. This is all powerfully charged. Yet, aside from an initial powerful contingent of soldiers, there appears to be no more enemies in here. Ominously, for all that he suddenly remembers about this place, Bart seems to have forgotten the way in, too. You have to either blunder around in the dark until you find the access panel, or you can opt to allow Margie to open it for you. She travels with your party but doesn't take part in battles. Her role will be crucial for the story, yet she remains unplayable, providing another symbolic pressy of the game itself. And the story, majestic as it is, remains misunderstood by the common people of Nisan, who evidently do not know Bart was the prince this whole time, which can't be right because they definitely talked to him as if he was earlier in the game, I thought. At least some of them. Anyway, that misconception of theirs here is not clear to me. I assumed his identity was known to all and not just to a few, including the nuns. The spareness of the corridors, darkness, and the tranquil theme music that plays all tend to lull the player into a sense of normalcy. Or what passes for normalcy in a game where you run around on a flying airship Rather than the suspense we should be feeling for Bart and Margie accomplishing their destiny, still, we shouldn't dismiss the possibility that this is intentional, that such fulfillment is in fact best portrayed just like this, as the most normal and natural thing in the world. We see the Fatima Jasper scanners recapitulate the iconography of the two angels from the great altarpiece. Bart, with his one eye, is nearly a literal representation of the one-winged angel here, needing Margie to supply the light of hers for the way to the treasure to open. Aside from the scanner checkpoint and an impressive control room bridge, which together with the gangplank-like initial doorway hints at the true nature of this place, there's a dizzying sameness to the vast dungeon, Noticeably slightly circular in its geometry. Once you do, by trial and error, or else, carefully using your compass according to someone's guide, finally reach the ancestral gear, enthroned like in the picture scroll, Bart reads the message in old Fatima script. Peace to all those who come here. Fearing great calamity, we sealed this legacy, entrusting its fate to you. It seems clear, then, that the founders of the dynasty knew something about the uses of power that even headstrong Bart, deep down, has felt, for he never yet tried to acquire or use this great gear. But the time has come, Shakan having forced his hand. The suggestion is that doing something in the bridge might make it possible to move the gear, so you have to retrace your steps, meeting the tool salesman there, realizing the power of the fort's cannon accidentally, and then, once you've been duly given a chance to prepare, Shakan and his troops show up. Margie runs through them, darting past and securing the Gear. This is almost as inexplicable as Sigurd and Satan showing up from their mission to take back the capital, and mysteriously being able to aid Bart with the eye scanner we have to wait for the explanation about that. Margie is in grave danger. Finally, that urgency that's been missing here comes all at once, as Shakan's trap is sprung and the young great mother foils it once again. She and Bart together in the cockpit of the Omnigear have a touching reunion. A wound that she's taken prevents her from carrying on, but the Gear moves by itself, seemingly, to block further attacks. Satan explains the pilot's mental link controls it. He refers to the omnigear at Shivat responding to Ellie's presence, which is an event we only hear about and more than once at that, making me wonder if it's something we were supposed to have seen in the course of the game. This wound of Margie's keeps Bart from going after Shakan, but then Satan explains it was her all along controlling the gear. The strength of Margie's desire to protect Bart that kept them safe, even though Bart thought he was protecting her. It'll take him some time to form the mental connection with Anvari that will unlock its full strength, but she somehow intuited it immediately, neatly fulfilling that wish of hers to rescue him for a change. The gear has a blood-red, black-clawed, winged, demonic look to it, uh, It's a variation on brigandier, or rather, brigandier might have been a variation on it. But that name, Anvwari, refers in Norse myth to a dwarf, ironically. The story comes down in several forms of the dwarf's connection to water and to waterfalls, to gold, to curses. It even gets taken up in the Wagnerian retelling of the Ring, though the character's name seems to be changed there, conflated with another. The revenge story, as it concludes here, involves a mythic clash in a cave by the sea. The hermit's hideout or something like that. Shakan, out of options, turns and fights once your party corners him there. By linking his huge gear to the gate generator. He's able to heal himself, though comically he can't reach you to counterattack while that physical link is attached. His Ignis Storm attack can deal heavy fire elemental damage, but mostly he hits you with these physical counters and his seal punch, and he heals more and more frequently in a bid to drag out the battle. But... In Saibzain or in Ellie's ether abilities, you have at least a couple of options which are still stronger than either the wily cleric, even once he's imbued with Graf's Mother of Destruction power, or the Omnigear itself. His last card, his reliance on the power of Solaris, is Shakan's ultimate undoing. As a Faustian bargain with power has been for all those Graf has awakened. And here, his defeat triggers the destruction of the first gate in a fantastic undersea explosion. Back in Bledavik, Bart addresses his people publicly, summarily declaring the end of the war with Kislev and the end of the monarchy, as if it were just that easy to cease generations-long hostilities and convert a kingdom into a republic. But politics is not the main concern of the game. Bart seems more concerned with retaining Faye's friendship despite abdicating his throne and letting down his mentors and advisors now that their efforts raising him have finally been crowned with success. A corresponding scene ensues that evening in which Bart sets the record straight with Mason and Sigurd in private. Sigurd's true identity as Bart's older half-brother, together with Bart's heaven-sent ether attack, seem like a reworking of the royal desert brother motif from Final Fantasy VI. We might want to know more about the peacetime organization of Ava's new government, or about Sigurd's mother and her religion, Sig's unswerving loyalty to his younger legitimate brother but the game is hustling us along to our next objective. Before leaving town, we can visit the kids in the market who put on a play, giving their version of the events that have brought Fay, under his code name, you gave him back at the tournament and Prince Bart together and delivered the land and brought brothers and fathers home from war. You notice that none of the kids want to play as Margie, though. Um, then it's on to the second gate generator under Ethos headquarters. A humorous council of war settles on the Fatima, or rather Fort Jasper, cannon and the Babel Tower mirror as the unlikely solution to the problem of how to destroy a gate buried so deep. It suggests that these corresponding parts of a single ancient weapon are capable of reaching the gate. It's another take on the two-pieces motif, like the angels and the eyes and the lovers and brothers. It also riffs on the question of the proper uses of power, that theme that's been pulsing under phase progress this whole time. The energy of the gun is worth little without the mirror to guide it. And so, your party splits into two groups for a series of tag-team battles with the Elements, there to defend Ramses' honor, <laughs> afting down by the orbs in Solaris calling him trash. More on that later. The player controls Fay and Ellie, and then two other party members of your choosing, while Billy and Satan handle the technical side of aiming the shot and inclining the angle of the mirror. The counterpart's motif is insistent here. Each fight gets split into two rounds. Round two, necessary when Billy's initial attempt misses, although not catastrophically. He doesn't strike the tower somewhere other than the mirror or anything like that any more than Bart's first accidental shot was a a catastrophe rather than just a humorous error. By the second shot... (laughs) Billy's accounted for the drop ratio of the atmosphere, if Tolone's diagnosis is correct, or else he just gets lucky, and the gate generator is toast. As a counterpart to your party, discussing the two possible locations of the third and final gate generator, forming a triangle, enclosing Solaris either to the north or the south of the base described by the two destroyed so far, We see the gazelle ministry interrupted in their deliberations, this time by Krellian. We can gather from their debrief here that part of why they're so annoyed at Ramses is connected to gathering data for an alignment of some kind, which has gone awry in the past. The body of the emperor, it seems, has been replaced by a clone before, but this doesn't seem to be the sort of alignment they have in mind. If Ramses indeed is trash, He wouldn't serve for a cane replacement, but the orbs aren't worried about this going wrong. Krelian goes one further and doesn't seem concerned about any of this, about the destruction of the gates, the citizens' panic. He seems as aloof from all that as they are from the lambs, in fact. Where does his transcendence draw the line? With the mother indicated by data collected by the memory cube. Her persona is clear now that she's reached a crucial age. And what's more, she is likely merged with the antitype. That woman from Nisan must be Sophia. His plan is to send Emeralda, the girl from the Zeboim civilization, created between the contact and the antitype, the fey, And Ellie, as we saw in her flashbacks, to reveal something of her memory as mother by her reaction, or failing that, Emeralda can be disposed of, for Krellion has already extracted all he needs of yet another kind of data from the nanomachine girl. By his proposal and his general attitude, it seems Krellion is prepared to treat Solaris and its ministers with precisely the same detachment when they are no longer necessary to him. Indeed, it seems that time may be fast approaching. Incidentally, of course, he actually orchestrates the reuniting of Fay, Ellie, and Emeralda. here. Is it just possible that he has a merciful side beneath that singularity of purpose? We'll come back to this too. Somehow, no one knows where Solaris actually is but Ellie's hint that all around was the sea is enough for them to spring for the ocean south of the main continent, Ignis, as the more probable location of Gate 3. With it, the good guys' plan comes together to get help from the salvagers on the Thames, how utterly different from their antagonists in their willingness to seek and to give help to one another. The Sargasso, we learn the place is called. Name for the Bermuda Triangle, and like the legends and superstitions surrounding it, it seems based on the real-world location. The captain of the Thames tells you it's said to be a living cave, which sounds a lot like a coral reef, or indeed like the nanomachine colony who awaits you there. No salvagers who go there return, yet the captain's willing to outfit your party's gears to handle the depths, and As if as an afterthought, he tells you what this entails as far as gameplay. You'll be able to double jump and keep jumping to progress. It's a reminder of the verticality the game has tried to incorporate, but also how, aside from cutscenes, we never get to actually fly around in our gears. The airship drives and flies and, uh, in this case, dives down and drops your party into the undersea cave a series of branching tunnels extending ahead, so that your exploration, although theoretically much freer, as you get to jump and jump and fly, in in practice it's limited to choosing directions, multi-jumping against gravity and in one place against the push of the current. It's like the waterways below Bledovic when you infiltrated the castle with Bart. The treasures this time include a mermaid mail, dark rod, and the death blower level two to go with the level one model you might have gotten from the mausoleum, if not from playing cards against Queenie on the Thames. Elsewhere, through the seaweed, which is the only indication of that complex life said to organize the place, the current pulls your party forward. So there's no going back, there's only one way out. And that's through, past a save point, the final gate generator, guarded by a strange observer, a being calling itself Ratan, merged with its gear, who bids you welcome from Krellian. And then there's the would-be assassin. If anything, this fight against Emeralda is easier than the bosses holding the previous two gates. Yet with its music... The mermaid motif and the underwater cave setting is a far more haunting and memorable event. And it seems it wasn't Krellian's intention to prevent you here, but to see through his proxy what would happen when Emeralda met her maker. After a little while, her gear slumps its graceful shoulders and his pilot comes to her senses. The observer remarks, I see. Reckless. Now that you should view it as a release of memory, or maybe a recording. It turned out just as Krellian said, it is a manifestation of the imprinting. At any rate, it is proven. With that, excuse me. I must report the results. Oh yes, go ahead and take the girl. Use her any way you like. After all, she is your daughter." The release of energy seems sufficient to destabilize the gate, making even the cool observer nervous. Think of it like a recording. We might think of the music box and the power of memory with all that entails as in a way the driver of the entire story from the beginning. These staged battles, so far observed by Graf, and now this other power of Krellion coming into the open, What are they but representations of the way we have observed as well as participated in the story all along? And this staged quality will become quite heavy in Disc 2. Back aboard the Yggdrasil, Emeralda is bouncing up and down with delight. The 4,000-year gap between them is bridged by her recovered memory. She recognizes Faye as Kim saying the name over and over to the point where it takes Satan's acumen interpreting that what it means to her something like father Ellie tries to mediate too suggesting Fay resembles Emerald's creator to which the little girl responds stubbornly Kim is Kim she does not seem to recognize Ellie even though it was Ellie who had the flashback in Ziboyim, who was there, right alongside Kim, when they created her. Emeralda calls it a dream, describing with her idiosyncratic language a birthday cake with candles for her to emerge from the tube, but then the disappearance of her body, the long, long time she spent in the dark. There's more than a little resemblance between Emeralda's existence and Faye and Ellie's own parts of themselves which remain in the dark for now. The side quest later in the lighthouse will restore more of these memories, but by then Ellie will be gone from your party. She has an almost jealous, exasperated reaction to Emeralda's Dismissal of her and fixation on Fay. She has him promise they'll stay together this time. And when Ellie tries to include herself in the promise, she's rejected. The joke she makes is, is a bitter one. Maybe she should bury you back on the ocean floor. Which, in fact, foreshadows the visit that you'll make to the ancient city later on. Satan suspects Krellian must have learned something important from the nanomachine to have given up Emeraldus so lightly. But his musings are interrupted by a telegram. Solaris is visible. With thanks to the fellows at Retrograde Amnesia for helping make my work a little more visible. And to the Let's Play archive. Uh, Normally, I rely on the God and Mind page script to review specific passages, but in this case, uh, there was a chapter that broke off partway through, so I found the pages compiled by Carnegie, complete with numerous screenshots and the occasional offhand joke, which was helpful and fun. Thanks to anyone listening, and uh, I'll let you go.